country. Oh, I don't have to do that anymore, do I? <laughs> That's right. Sorry about that. Because we're live streaming now. Welcome. <laughs> Welcome to Amateur Hour. I mean, the film, film I'm some guy on YouTube. I mean, the film, film, film brilliant film project, Dave Kale, uh, and I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm working out the kinks. Working out the kinks. Yeah. Because we're no longer a podcast. We're now a YouTube live stream, complete with video. <laughs> And uh, podcast and all kinds of delivery that's mechanisms. True. That's true. Yeah. yeah, that's true. Yeah. We don't we're, uh, discriminate. We're a, uh, multimedia, multimodal <laughs> experience. Absolutely. <laughs> it, it is true. It's like the number of ways that you can log in and participate live is kind of nuts. Yes. It's, uh, it is. It's like the Frankenstein operation that you've got going on. <laughs> it kind of is. It kind of is. Uh, and I try to keep track of all the things at once, uh, though I sometimes lose track of it. But um, uh, though, Dave, I have to say, you do an excellent job of not only, you know, participating in the discussion, but also responding to people's comments on YouTube and live tweeting at the same time. So, so you're... you're uh, participating fairly heavily in the multimodal experience of, of the film film broadcast, I have to say. <laughs> that reminds me, I have not, I haven't navigated over to the YouTube channel. I got to do that. So anyway, we're here. Uh, the other person that you can see and listen to uh, talking, uh, you know quite well, that's uh, Professor Corey Olson, the Tolkien professor. And we're joined by um, uh, one of our uh, essential participants in the writer's room, the Silmarillion Film Project Writer's Room, Marie Prosser. How are you tonight, Marie? Hi, thanks for having me on. Hey, always happy. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, So, yeah, so last time we got about, did we get fully two-thirds of the way? I think we did get two-thirds of the way through our discussion of episode five, uh, the outline of episode five. Um, We got all the way up to the C-plot, which is, of course, the one that we were kind of most looking forward to talking about, which was uh, Halith in uh, uh, Nandungorthib, in whose honor, of course, I... So I'm featuring Sheila in my background here tonight because... You know, she's going to be on screen in this episode. So, you know, one of the stars of the show here tonight. So I thought we would do that, even though it's increasingly creepy. Like my head is like in Shelob's mouth, right? You know, in this background. But at least Sam is nicely framed over my shoulder. So I I feel like uh, I feel like I'm protected there, which is nice. Anyway, um, so for those of you who are listening to the audio version, it's uh, John Howe's uh, uh, Shelob and and Sam uh, uh, image that I have as my uh, background here. So that's what I'm talking about. All right. Um, Let us uh, jump into things. First, a couple quick announcements. Uh, to begin. Uh, first, Mythmoot 8 uh, is happening June 24th to 27th. You can find out all about that at signumuniversity.org slash Mythmoot and stay tuned. Uh, we should next week have the announcement of our final decision. We've been, we've been kind of waiting and looking and, uh, you know, sort of testing the winds and seeing what we think about whether or not we want to try to do a hybrid experience for Mythmoot or whether we're going to stick completely remote. Um, our registration options right now are for our two uh, remote, uh, completely digital uh, levels. And the one thing that we are, no matter what happens, we are going to have, uh, we want to have, you know, full access digital experience available for everybody. So, you know, one way or the other, the digital experience is going to happen. You know, the immersive digital experience is going to happen and it's going to be awesome. 
like it was last year. The question is whether or not we also try to do a hybrid in-person experience on top of that uh, as well or not. So we are nearing decision point on this. We've been, you know, weighing as much as we can and kind of watching, uh, you know, vaccine numbers and all of those kinds of things as we're uh, trying to track that. Not to mention, of course, Marie, um, uh, the state where we will uh, where we we hold Mythmoot. So therefore, uh, the question of what the governor of Virginia says about gatherings of people has been of particular interest to me uh, in the last month. So um, and Nick says, could we try to ignore him as well? Most of the time, most of the time, I have to admit, I don't hang on his every word. But lately, I've been slightly more interested. So we should have an announcement about that next week. Uh, and I'm excited about that. Um, speaking of things that are happening next week, um, what a transition. That was flawless. Clubs. Uh, Signum Clubs is st- our first sections are starting up. I'm really, really excited about this. We've got uh, we've got a section of our uh, Old English Translation Club starting. We've got a section of our creative writing uh, workshop starting, and we've got a section of our book club starting. Um, so, you know, the, the first ones of our sections, and we're, we're you know, we're, we're preparing to form more. We're, we uh, we can now confirm that we've got uh, conversation clubs uh, open in uh, German and Spanish both, and we can do a uh, translation club in Latin as well as Old English and Old Norse. Uh, so there's lots of really fun options uh, as our, our options continue to expand and more people uh, enroll. So this is uh, uh, it's really exciting to be getting clubs starting up and I'm excited about that. So you can find out more at signumuniversity.org slash academy. And if you want to keep up, if you want to uh, stop in and join in uh, the writer's room, as uh, Dave was saying, uh, the film film script discussion uh, up for episode 10. So they're getting towards the end of the season now. So and these these script discussions, just to make sure everybody knows what that is, um, that's the. Would you call it a brainstorming session? I'm not sure if that's quite fair, but like basically kind of thinking through what should go into the outline for that episode, basically, Marie? It's it's a working session, yeah. So the idea is to put together an episode outline. And so brainstorming happens and working out logistical issues right. as well as figuring out how to structure the story. Um, but it's a rather lengthy process, but at the end of it, we typically have a an outline for the episode. Right. So the like so the discussion that we're going to be continuing now uh, from episode number five is basically the product of that work you know, that you guys did a while back. And you guys are up to episode 10 now as you're trying to stay far enough ahead to still give some time between that script discussion and when we, uh, you know, when the main sessions catch up with that um, so that you can have some time to to develop those outlines, sometimes uh, to write full scripts, even, uh, you know, when that's possible and and all that kind of thing. So, um so yeah, but so there's still you know four more episodes uh, to be planned. Um, uh, so starting with episode ten. So um, which one is episode ten? That must be up in Ladros now. Uh, right. So that's the one that focuses on the death of Aratha. Uh-huh. For the Gondolin storyline, ah. and then um, we do have a, a second storyline with men, um, which will take place in Dorlan. Indoor Loman. Okay, right. Mm-hmm. Um, we, want, we need to get Engolfin in there because we're getting towards the end of his storyline. Right, so right. He, so he, he features as the, uh, the, the B plot of episode 10. Right, right. Got it. Right. Stephen H is saying that. that so that's also when the double wedding is going to be? 
So we're gonna yes, we're yeah, yeah we're gonna be catching up on. Uh, uh, we're going to be aging up our humans <laughs> right during this episode and catching up with people a little further down the road. Um, yeah, 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 cool. A lot of passing of the torch. Yeah, yeah. Right, exactly, exactly. Okay, cool, cool. Um, so, yeah, so are, are we doing the full end of the gondola? Sort of like, are we going to pitch Ao off the cliff in episode 10 too? Yes. Yeah, yes, okay. Episode, nice. Yeah. All right. So we're going to end with Ao bouncing down the cliff. Great. Um, so, uh, okay. Sorry, spoilers. <laughs> spoilers. Uh, well, well, there was a bit of discussion as to how to share that. Brie Melvin was able to join us uh, for for the uh, discussion. And um, there was some logistics, again, of how you pitch people off cliffs uh, on film. And right. The, nah. the, the general consensus <laughs> seemed to be for showing the broken body at the bottom of the cliff rather than the fall. Right. Um, right. Just for pacing reasons, I guess. But right. It's hard for a fall to be dramatic. Yes. I can see that. I can see that. Um, cool. Excellent. So, yeah, that's... Um, um, that's excellent stuff. So, yeah, so if you want to uh, 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 be involved in that discussion, it's a, it's a really awesome time um it's not like these sessions where you know we're doing most of the talking you know trying to respond to comments that folks are making live during the session that's a it's a much more open working session there that you can join in so um cool awesome and you can find the links uh and information here uh on the forum uh in the link there so um yeah cool all right excellent those are our announcements. Now, let us get back into the episode that we're talking about. So we're going to rewind significantly from the bouncing of Dark Elves and back to the Haladin passing through West Beleriand. So um, we were talking about Haleth camping out, getting impatient after, like, months have gone by, you know, while uh, um, Thingol is just kind of attempting to be judicious and give it a little, you know, let the question breathe for a minute or two before he responds rashly. Um, and uh, off they go uh, through Spider Town. Okay, so they take the path through Nand- Dungorthab. Now, I, I've been, I have a preliminary question here. How are we planning to... How much do they know? Um, so, like, I can see this going a couple different ways, right? On the one hand, we could have the, their awareness about the dangers of Nandungorthab be comparatively high. I mean, they're not going to have first-hand experience, obviously, but they could have heard stuff about this, right? Um, so like, if, if their knowledge of what they're facing is comparatively high, then the story is Haleth saying, despite the danger, despite all the things that we've heard, we're going to do it every way, or anyway, people, right? And that's that would give one dynamic to the story if their information is relatively low, right? So that they really don't know what to expect until they get there, right? And then they're like, "Gosh, this is unexpectedly creepy." Like, uh, you know, maybe we should turn around. Nah, I'm sure it'll be fine, right? And then the giant spiders start descending on them, and yet they still persevere. That's like a different, you know, dynamic of the story, right? And especially with Haleth and with the relationship between Haleth and her people. And in my mind. The number one question, right? The number one thing, the thing I am most interested in in this story, is 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 that element, right? Is the is is Haleth, her leadership and her relationship with her people, right? Um, 
So did you, you know, in the conversation that you guys have had as you guys were, were developing this outline, um, did you get sort of a sense of that? Do you, do, do you, you know, Maria, was there a general feeling of how you guys wanted to, to play that? We were under the impression that the decision to go through Nendungartha with an entire group of people is rash. Is rash. Um, like, right. Yeah. It's, it would be difficult to look at that and be like, yes, quality leadership choice there. <laughs> right. So <laughs> Calculated risk, but I think we can handle it. Yeah. Right. Therefore, it seemed natural to think that they may have had some warning, but didn't understand what they were in for. So that's that's kind of how we went with it, is that they made the decision to do this, and only when they're in the midst of it do they realize what they have bitten off <laughs> right. as far as how dangerous it's going to be. Right. Um, so, so there is a, a little bit of naivete in this, mm-hmm. in the initial decision. Is there going to be? Allows, uh, sorry, no. Sorry, go ahead. Well, I was going to say Nick was uh, uh, adding a really interesting question. Do they believe in giant spiders? Like, part is part of their naivete skepticism. Right. Like, even if someone says it's dangerous, there's spiders there. I'm like, okay, we'll step on them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, and, and, and <laughs> right. especially since, right, I mean, once again, um, we can have, I mean, they will have come across other times when, like, they know that they and the elves don't look at things the same way, right? So, I mean, you know, it's like, well, like, I would think it more likely that there would be a couple ways we could play that, right? One would be the Haladine saying, like, oh, these elves are afraid of the spiders, but, you know, they're just wussy elves. Like, we're rugged humans and we can handle it. But the other way would be for them to feel like the elves are patronizing them, right? Like, be careful, there are spiders and you might get bitten, right? And then being like, you know, what are you trying to say? Like, we're not afraid of some spiders, Right. Yeah, the the elf they're interacting with directly is Belek. Right. And so presumably they have some background knowledge that there is a danger in, in going forward. Right. In that right. Belek would have at least tried to convey that. Uh, he, he seems like the kind of guy who would share that yeah. sort of information yeah. with people and wouldn't think he, that he, they didn't need to know. He does. Um, he does. But, but how much he conveyed and how much they understood was less than the reality. Right, right. Sorry, I'm laughing. Uh, Stephen, uh, Stephen C. was saying, this is the most foul, cruel, and bad-tempered arachnids you ever set eyes on. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, what, behind the spider? Yeah, exactly. No, that's, that's um, right. And, you know, Nick was saying they might be imagining, like, giant spiders, like s- spiders the size of a dinner plate or something like that, which would be horrifying, unsettling, uh, right? Uh, but, you know, them being like, we can handle it, we're not afraid, right? Not really realizing um, the thing. And and again, because obviously one of the things that I'm thinking here is for there to be yet another opportunity to show this sort of disjunction, even with the Haladin especially, a certain level of distrust, right? Like, they're not coming in assuming that the elves are being like straightforward and generous. Like they're, they're, even if they don't, I mean, it's not that they think the elves are evil or something, but, but again, they would be quicker to sort of bristle and think like, are you patronizing us? Like, are you, you know, rather than 
you know, just being like, well, you know, if Beleg says it's a risk, then we shouldn't risk it because we trust him implicitly. Like, that's totally not going to be their response, right? Um, so, uh, and, and again, I do think that there can be some, you know, I don't think we have time, because we, we're not going to have much time for conversation between them and Beleg, right? I mean, how many encounters between them and Beleg are we going to show? Two? One? One at the beginning and then one in the next episode. Right, after, they, right. When, it, his, after yeah, this ends through. with them meeting up on the other side, but right. we don't actually have a, the conversation. Yeah, so Beleg will feature in their story in the future, so he gets to be introduced here. But, yeah, it's not like he's having multiple right. interactions with them prior to this trip. Yeah, so we're going to have to... We're going to have to make any reaction of theirs to, you know, Beleg in particular, or like the elves in general, be just kind of internal to their own discussions, right? Well, actually, this leads me to ask a question I probably should have started with. This is the C-plot. How many scenes do we get with the Haladin in this episode? Oh, I'd have to look at the outline to get the total number. A few, right? Um, But yeah, yeah, several, several. um, Because in this particular episode, the A, B, and C-plots all interconnect. Right. So we're allowed to get more scenes than you would expect. <laughs> right. In a right. It's not like um, one of so these, like, meanwhile in Gondolin C-plots, right? It's... Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, in Act 1 is when they request the permission to enter Doria. So that's their interaction with Beleg. In Act 2, it's an internal conversation of, we haven't heard from Doria in a while. Mm-hmm. Looks like we're going to have to make our own call here mm-hmm. and decide to move on. Um, by the end of Act 2, they are crossing the bridge into Nandangortha. So, mm-hmm. like, at the midpoint of the episode is when they actually enter the forest with the spiders. So then all this storyline on this slide about what's happening in right. the right. spider forest is um, Act 3 okay, and 4. Act 3 and 4. Okay. So, um, all right. So, the, oh, do we lose Murray? No, I'm here. Oh, we still have your audio? Okay, yeah, no worries. Um, um, Okay, so their perspective, so Halleth's perspective and the people's attitude towards her as their beginning is basically we've been warned that it's risky, but we kind of, we think that we can handle it. Like, we're pretty confident that either they're exaggerating or they're patronizing us or you know, we're all willing to go on um, and Haleth is going to bravely lead them uh, in this path, which they're expecting to be difficult. They're going to be on their guard against danger, but they're pretty sure they can handle it, right? But there's clearly going to come a point when the magnitude of the danger becomes clear. And not just the danger, but Nandangortheb is more than just the place where there are giant spiders, right? I mean, there's other elements, like more like psychotropic elements of of, uh, of Nandangortheb, which probably are going to come up, right? Um, that is, it's not just, you know, a place where giant spiders live. It's also like kind of trippy and um, uh, there's like a, you know, psychic or spiritual element of Nandan Gortheb as well. Uh, so, at some point, sooner or later, I'm thinking likely sooner, they're going to reach a point where everyone says, okay, 
this actually might even be worse than we were warned, right? Not only is it not better as we thought, it's actually worse. People have got to be saying, this was a bad idea. Let's turn around and run away as fast as we can right now and go back to where we were because at least we weren't getting et by giant spiders at that point. Um, and Haleth is going to have to... So like, the point will have to come where Haleth is going to hold them to the road by the force of her will. How are we going to manage that? How? Let me ask an, a broader question. What do we want for Haleth's character? Like, how do we want Haleth to come across as she's doing that? Um... Because we'd have to, we, this is something we'd have to handle really carefully, right? Um, yes, because this is the part of her leadership that is the ugly side. Right. Because um, being able to hold her people to the force of her will is an interesting trait. What she's doing with it now is deadly. Right. And what the the incident that we came up with to bring this all to light is her good friend. Brill mm-hmm. is going to be taken off by spiders. Right. And so this is someone she cares about, right. and we know that. And her decision is going to be the people almost move forward, and we have to protect the people. We can't run off into the woods to chase spiders. Right. So Brill's gone now. Right. And someone has to disagree with that. Someone has to be like, no, that's not the right decision here. And we right. decided that Rill's father, who had been a character in the stockade battle, yep. would be the perfect person to be like, uh, no, I'm going to go save my daughter. I'm not going to take this decision of if you fall behind, you're left behind. <laughs> right. Kind of thing. Exactly. And the and the he's a very logical choice because he's also sort of the last surviving member of that older generation that we met in the stockade battle, right? The, he was the friend of her father's, right? Um, mm-hmm. So the obvious kind of rival, he's the sort of paternal figure, not only literally Brill's father, but also in, because of his friendship with her father in that kind of quasi-paternal relationship with her. And so clearly her assertion of her authority has to, you know, overcome, you know, him and his influence uh, there. So I, th- that, that makes all kinds of sense to me. So he's, he says, no, we have to stop and go find her. And what's, and so, so what's her reaction to that? She lets him go. Yes. I mean, she's not going to stop him, but she's not going to help him either. And right. she's going to say that her duty is to their people to keep them all safe. And so he right. goes off on his own to try to save his daughter and Haleth and the rest of the people move forward, showing a break in their decisions. But right. at the end, we are going to rescue him. So it's all going to turn out okay. <laughs> right, right. For him, not for Brill. Brill does become spider food. Right, Brill episode. is going to die. Right. Okay, yes. so we have actually, we have real loss there. Exactly. Yeah. I, there has to be a cost to Halleck's decision. Yes. And it, the cost had to be someone she cared about, and we couldn't kill off her nephew, um, seeing as how we kind of need him to grow up and play a role in carrying on her line. <laughs> right, right, right. The kid uh, must so live. We, That's clear. Yeah. Right. So we killed off the kid's mom. So yeah, this right. is her, yeah. her sister-in-law well, and her best friend. This all seems very economical. I mean, you know, we have we, there's only so many 
characters among the Haladin that we can really develop, right? And through the stockade battle, we already have. I mean, we're 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 using up almost all of them, right? You know, the the, the Brill, her father, and uh, uh, and uh, and you know, the heir to be. Um, yeah, no, I mean that's that makes. I think that that makes perfect sense. And having having the friend die, um, that's even if it were the father who died then that would, I think, create a kind of an uglier dynamic, right? Like, I'm breaking free from the older generation. Like, we don't care if we, you know, we're, like, sort of symbolically, that would, that could be a little bit, could feel a little uglier, right? Whereas this makes the, the loss a little bit more personal, a little bit more relevant to her, right? Right, I, right. I like we didn't that. want her to seem cold or heartless. Right. But she is very ruthless in her style of leadership. So right. we wanted to kind of find that balance. So again, how ugly does this look? That is up to the viewer. Because usually you expect the, no one will fall behind, we'll save everybody kind of mentality. And that is not how it's... That's not how it's, right. ...back on any, anything in this, in this episode or the next one. Right, so how and do we make... Even with the stockade, it was like, save who you can and... Sorry, everybody else. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Yeah, I mean, she's extremely practical you know she is ruthless uh, yeah yeah i mean she is ruthless in the one thing that i one danger that i can see that we'd have to be cautious of of course if we're going to have the loss of brill be something that's you know is sort of supposed to make an impact on her show an impact on her we have to you know there's a risk of her just seeming callous, as you were saying, like just cold, right? Like, you know, Brill's taken by spiders and she's like, well, you know, what I leave behind, I count no loss, right? Like we don't want her to come across like that. Um, um, uh, so I, it needs to be clear that she does care about Brill, but that she's making a decision um, what exactly is the basis of her? De- is the basis of her decision just essentially that she um, she knows that if they like stop and scatter and hunt after people, that they're all going to die? So it's it's is this yeah. a like needs of the many and needs of the few kind of situation? Exactly. Yeah. Now that they're in a desperate situation, she's using that logic to say, "I'm going to save as many of my people as I can." Right. And. This is where we coalesce her little band of Amazons. Right. Because they have to spend time fighting spiders the whole way through and then Dungartha. They become warriors in this incident. Right. Even more so than in the stockade battle. Right. Right. Um, And yeah, I I really kind of like that, by the way, as a natural progression, right? We had so many of the the male warriors dying off in the, you know, in the, in the stockade, you know, in the, the, along with her father and brother, right? Um, so we already had, you know, the survivors being primarily the older men and the women and children uh, having to take desperate action independently. Um, but it was still mostly just survival action, right? Like how to survive, uh, you know, and find food uh, and hold out and defend the walls and try to escape, right? Whereas now they're taking sort of another step, right, to become, uh, uh, as you say, to, to, to not just be independent survivors but to become warriors uh and i think that it that's i like how that kind of maps onto haleth herself as well like them as a kind of a slightly externalized expression of her own character development if you see what i mean 
Yes. Um, uh, yeah. Again, if, if someone's going to be a little bit stoic, it's hard to get a read on them as to what they actually feel. Right. So having external characters to pull it out of them is necessary. And that's what we're doing with the Haladine. The we're right. using the Haladine to put spotlights on Halos. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I agree with Rebel Reformer on Twitch that um, her decision uh, is less, I'm so stubborn, we're going to go on even though it looks like a really bad idea, and more, there's no going back from here. I mean, she she should be not just making bad decisions, but she's going to ruthlessly approach the situation and, f- in, and you know, so... Once things get really bad, it's too late, right? She know like if they turn around and try to run away, the spider's going to pursue them, and it, you know it's they would be better off, you know, staying together and continuing to move forward. Um, and again, showing her making those kinds of calculations, like you know, so that I guess you know it's one of the things that I think is most challenging in this because you're you know in one sense we are deviating from a lot of the kind of traditional Hollywood models of good leadership, right? Um, you know, Nick in, in the comments was just contrasting Haleth with Captain America, right? Which I agree. That's a really interesting point of contrast. Um, uh, Haleth, no, Haleth is not Captain America. Um, but that doesn't mean she's not a good leader, right? I mean, they're, 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 we're kind of, I, at least I feel, that we are often expected or invited uh, to think, you know, okay, so uh, if um, uh, if somebody who's a good leader is like somebody who's going to like, you know, leave no one behind and is going to, you know, uh, whereas someone who acts as ruthlessly and in some ways almost apparently heartlessly as we might have to depict Haleth acting, um, you know, usually that's not something we get behind, you know, that's not something we're usually asked, uh, to, uh, sort of, you know, endorse, but that seems to me the really big challenge to sort of, sort of show like under these circumstances, like, yes, her choices were costly. Yes. She has to make brutal decisions, but we can show like under the circumstances. Yeah. Like there's nothing else that she can do. Um, and if she didn't, if she did do what Brill's dad wanted to do, um, the the rest of them would have would have been killed, um, and she, you know she really is doing what's best for the people and being motivated by thinking about what's best for the people uh, and being willing to make these kinds of hard decisions. Um, but yeah, boy, it's going to be a really really tricky, um, a really tricky balance, right? Yeah, I, th- I think it will be easy for people to dislike Hella in this yes, scenario. It will be and. I mean, we were trying to create ways where she'd still be sympathetic. People would see what she's trying to accomplish. Mm-hmm. And, like, we can show her little... Her nephew is in the 5 to 10-year-old range right. for this. So he's young. So there are young children with them. And the whole, like, well, we've got to save the people is... Like, there will be people there to show that side of the yes. story. Yes. But, like, letting her... Leaving her best friend for dead is not something that an audience is going to forgive her. Right. And we should show that she doesn't really forgive herself either. Mm -hmm. She just feels she has no choice. Right. And that she's, I mean, that 
there's like multiple kinds of toughness that I associate with Haleth, you know, um, and some of it kind of unrelenting. I mean, this element, this, this moment, you know, how, you know, I, there are times, um, you know, when I read the very brief account of this in the Silmarillion, where I have this image of Haleth almost driving her people through Nandungorthib, you know, um, uh, the way that Tolkien emphasizes, like, the strength of her will that, that you know, compels them to keep going when they would not otherwise do so. Um, but, um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> interesting, I'm getting several, uh, 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 several Marvel comparisons here. Nick says more, m- more, more Nick Fury than Captain America and... Rebel Reformer is thinking more of like Agent May or Daisy Johnson from Agents of Shield. Yeah, yeah, I can see, I can see the one of those. Um, uh, actually, Agent May is a really interesting parallel because I, 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 it would be easy, I think, for many people to dislike her. I think in some ways, but um, she's certainly a character that grows on you. But um, yeah, and Stephen, I agree. Stephen uh, covers says it's easy to be a good leader when there are clear good and bad choices, it's much tougher when there are no good options. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, um, yeah. Yeah. No, I think this is a, this is a really fascinating incident. Um, and how do we want to show she's obviously going to be deeply affected by, I mean, the people are going to be deeply affected and she's going to be deeply affected. What do we want to show for the, like before and after of the Nandun Gortheb experience with her and with the people as a whole? Certainly the people who come out of the West side of the forest are battered, shell shocked, Mm -hmm. um, just have gone through a traumatic ordeal. Mm Mm-hmm. They're clearly not just a happy group of settlers traveling across the continent, which is what they might have appeared at the beginning. Right. Um, so it, it's it's going to be clear that they're a little hollowed out by what they've gone through. Right. But they're a very cohesive group at right. the end of that. Right. Right. I mean, it's it's a group activity at that point, and that is how they'll become the people of Haleth who live in their forest and everyone else kind of leaves them alone. Like they right. are who they are. So it's, it's unifying and horrifying. Unifying and horrifying. <laughs> and gonna, yeah. Yeah. And they're going to need a minute to recover from this. Like they're not instantly jumping into their next adventure. Right. Right. Exactly. Though I would think that the long, t- so, I mean, it's easy for me to see how, some of the long-term state that we kind of imagine with the Haladin afterwards there in the Forest of Brethil could be a direct result of this. Like, both the kind of survivors banding together, keeping to themselves, you know, kind of situation where they're not, um, you know, because they've been drawn together by their experience, right? Um, That afterwards they're going to be sort of closing ranks, in a sense, right? Um, uh, and nobody else sort of understands them, and and the, you know, I, I just it, it's easy for me to imagine that kind of mentality, which was already they were already kind of isolationist before this, to be you know kind of adding that extra layer onto it, um, and uh, and also more independent, right? Um, 
after they've survived this. Well, they survived that, right? So they're going to be less daunted, you know, perhaps by other, you know, it's, it's by comparison, most of the other challenges they're going to face in the forest of Brethel. I mean, like giant cats, please. That's nothing to spiders. Right. So when we see them take out to Vilder's cats in the next episode, it's a planned, concerted effort where right. they know what the cats are. They go in, they execute a plan, and at the end, the cats are dead. Right. And, um, I mean, we'll, we'll talk about episode six at another time, but yep. the the idea is that we will see growth of them as not just survivors, but warriors. Like, they've come together, and they now operate as, like, a little mini army. Right, right. And so... the entire people of Hell are dangerous people. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Right. So that, you know, hopefully that, you know, can certainly help to sort of show, at least in retro or especially perhaps in retrospect, um, that this has been that kind of a really formative experience for them. Right. That, you know, this has been a real crucible that they've gone through. Yeah. And then as as the season goes on, we'll see them in more peaceful settings to show that despite this ordeal, they go on to become, you know, a group of people living out their lives. Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Um, how about Haleth's character before and after? Like we, we, we will see her, I would think, harder afterwards, right? I mean, someone who has had to make the hard decisions and who is, you know, emotionally prepared to do so again if she has to. I would think that would have to almost inescapably have to be a consequence of this, wouldn't it? Yeah, her, her plan to take out the cat does not mean that all of her people will survive that encounter. Right, right. And she's fine with that. Yeah. Right, right. Um, yes. But I would also think, again, like the people as a whole are sort of strengthened by it, she would be um, also more confident, right? I, you know, Nendon... Nandun Gorthab was way more than they expected, but they did it, right? And, you know, yeah, compared to that, she's confident to overcome any obstacle uh, that they would face. I mean, it, it, it really, it, I can't wait for the encounter with Fingal after this, right? Um, I mean, I, I can't wait, because, like... I don't know, like, will Fingal have ever met someone who is more personally ready to just throw down with him if, like, you know, he tries to get in her face. Like, it's that that she's not going to... Um, she is not going to be so, intimidated. No, and this will be the first time that Thingol sees a human being. <laughs> in person. Like, the first human being he meets is Halif. Halif. <laughs> on the other side of Nandangortheb looking like she's ready to just, you know, kill some more spiders if she has Right, to. right, going so, with, like, the, you know, the icor, you know, blood of spiders all over her, yeah, absolutely, that's awesome. That is fantastic. Yeah. So, yeah, if Beleg weren't around, uh, that encounter would not go very well. But yeah. Beleg is around, and he <laughs> he knows Thingol, yeah. and he understands Talith well enough to know what what needs to happen there. So, yes. Beleg, Beleg makes it all better. Right, 
Right. Yes. So yeah, exactly. How, how is track record is she has met Caranthier and now single. So there's these very tall, <laughs> very proud elven lords, and she just has no no time of day for them. Yeah. 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 Um, and she was, of course, like I mean, the the comparison because it's actually a really fascinating comparison, isn't it? I mean, Caranthier comes in. Um, and basically rescues them when they were about to be when they were about to finally be slaughtered, right? I mean, they were about to lose ultimately, and then Caranthier comes in and rescues them. And so, you know, she's in this kind of compromised. You know, she like her people are in this kind of compromised position. You know, what she has to be aware from the outside looks like a position of weakness compared to the high and especially both physically high and very mighty elf lord, right, who comes in and rescues them. Um, but th- with Thingol, there's a parallel there, right? I mean, her people are also in a very low place. I mean, they're limping out of the Nandungorthab and they're wounded and they've lost people and, and they're in shock. And um, so once again, they're in a sort of a weakened place, but the dynamics are completely different, right? Um and it's just, I think it's a really, it's another really neat opportunity, the parallel between those encounters. Um, I mean, it's not an exact parallel, but but there's enough of a parallel in those two encounters uh, to really give a fun opportunity, I think, to show the difference in Haleth and the people. Exactly. Just, it, she, she continues to grow through her story, and she's not the same person as she was at the beginning. Yeah. I just... I'm just loving the idea of Haleth forming the baseline of Thingol's impression of humans. There are so many wonderful things about that, right? I, I mean, on the one hand, um, I mean, she is such a remarkable baseline <laughs> to, to have, you know. Um, but, uh, uh, the, I mean, the fact that we know he is meeting someone who is, like, extraordinary. Right, an, an absolutely extraordinary person, which he's taking as his baseline, which is there's already some really cool kind of dramatic irony in that. Um, but uh, but the way in which the potential that that has to like confirm his suspicions, right, um, about humans and and uh, it's I, I, you know not in ways that are even like a pro- I mean they're not bringing evil, right? They're not. Um, the humans at least at this and are not really a danger to the elves and stuff, but boy, you know, if you are single and, and, and are inclined to be suspicious and, you know, kind of maybe think that you've had a, uh, you know, a revelatory dream that tells you that the humans are bringing danger and destruction into Beleriand and then you you meet, you know, Haleth warrior queens, you know, stalking out of Nandungorthab, uh, you know, covered in the blood of giant spiders, like, okay, yeah, <laughs> I can see how perhaps your uh, concerns might be amplified. Right. So that was the deal where Galadriel was trying to convince him that he doesn't understand humans. Right. And that, you know, Finrod, you know, talk to Finrod. Finrod knows all about humans. Haleth is not the people of Beor living in Nargothrond. <laughs> no, no. Yeah. Oh, man, the disjunction between, like, the nice, kind, friendly, domestic humans who live in, who live in Nargothrond. Uh, and, uh, I mean, yeah, there's just there's no greater contrast between that. And not only Haleth, but Haleth at the moment that he encounters her. That is just spectacular. I just love that. That is just so spectacular. 
uh, so much wonderful once, potential. Once we thought of the opportunity of having them meet in person, we knew we had to do it. Oh, yeah. No, I love I it. I mean, I love it. Because we were originally talking about, so Beleg will be the in-between, and he'll take messages from Thingol to Halleth and from Halleth back to Thingol. And we do have some of that happening. Right. But if we can put them in the same space. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, exactly. I That's, yeah. And, it's, and again, if the, if the point of this episode is Thingol thinking about human having him meet one just seemed the right way to end the story. Mm-hmm. Um, just the one that we picked for him to meet. Was, you know. it's, it's priceless. It's just priceless. Yeah. Um, uh, I'm, try- I'm trying to imagine like the looks that Thingol would be giving to Finrod. You know, when Finrod is going on about like, oh, let me tell you about the humans that I know. And like, oh, these guys are great. And like Thingol just looking at him like, are you kidding me? Like, okay. All right. Um, yeah, very different experiences. Finrod likes everybody. Finrod makes friends with everyone. So yeah. it's very possible that people would look at that and be like, Finrod just is, you know, being nice. He's giving people the benefit of the doubt. Right. Here. Or even being naive. I mean, you know, Thingol. Right. Right. I mean, I'm, you know, Thingol obviously respects Finrod. So he's not just going to be, you know, laughing up his sleeve behind Finrod's back or something. But, but yeah, I mean, it'd be like, well, you know. Finrod is a kind and generous soul, you know, and, uh, you know, he's, he's, he's obviously willing to overlook a lot, you know, but, um, honestly, um, yeah, that's, um, that's really cool. Okay. So last Nen Dungortheb question, how do we handle the, like, ambiance of Nen Dungortheb? Um, how do we want to, what... Okay, here's the way I want to ask that. What percentage of the danger and trouble of Nandun Gortheb is directly giant spider related? Are we going to try to do anything other than that or just make it a place that's super dangerous? I mean, like, you know, Shelob and her siblings living there is plenty to make it really dangerous, right? I mean, like multiple Shelobs will do that. But um, uh, are we going to try? I mean, we talked about this a little bit before about the, you know, the the way and, you know, there there we could do Nandun Gortheb as more of a place of kind of magical turmoil uh, where the girdle is meeting, you know, the the, you know, the sort of the both the force of Morgoth and the um you know, the terror and darkness of the spiders as well, um, keeping that at bay, um, b- b- but also serving to kind of create this um, horrifying and possibly psychotropic area um, uh, th- where people tend to not only get eaten by giant spiders, but also, like, go insane. Um, so do we want to do anything of that um of that kind, yeah. Stephen H said we got uh, Sauron and Melian's magic colliding. Right, exactly. Um, this would be the sort of frontier there. Um, yes, I mean, I think we need some element of that because the whole point of Baron getting through is that he gets through the magic of the girdle, right? And right. also, obviously, survives Nandan Gorthab. So it shouldn't simply be 
giant spiders, creepy dark forest. Like there should be some element of that. We focused on the spiders as the main threat, mm-hmm. but there's certainly no reason that people can't be having um, some uh, either hallucination type incidents or um, mm-hmm. being too fearful to go forward or that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, we can certainly include that. I think that would enhance the experience a little bit. Uh, we didn't get a chance to show that with Aradel crossing right. 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 Uh, presumably because she is able to cross through that sort of thing a little easier. But an entire group of people, you'd have more more individuals to um, have different unique reactions. Yeah. So. Yeah. Hey, Stephen, I think that's a really great suggestion. Um, why don't we just primarily make the depiction of the like atmosphere we do, let's just leave that up to philip uh with the score right i mean like he can just pretty much take care of that himself right that seems fair yeah certainly the score would be necessary to convey the yeah. correct uh, ambiance of the forest however you don't usually leave it up to the score alone. You also right. do some set dressing to make it look like a creepy forest mm-hmm. and give the actors some particular incidents to work through that allows it to, to come through. So I don't think we need to put it 100% on. Not 100%. Yeah, Maybe that's an exaggeration. But although... But yes, it would be great if we could have a score that was creepy. We're gonna... So here's my... Um, here's my... Uh, my thought about that because we're going to need if we have the we're going to need a theme for Nandan Gortheb, right? We're going to need the creepy, evil valley forest place theme. And if we that's a theme, we're going to have plenty of play for that, right? Um, it could be incorporated into the Tolling Gaurahoth theme, right? Into Sauron's theme. It could be incorporated into, uh, you know, the Tower Nufuin. Uh, we're going we're gonna to get Tower, you know, so Turin in, in Tower Nufuin is, we're, we're going to have some similar elements there. Um, we, of course, can continue uh, to utilize that, like in Mirkwood, right? And around Dol Guldur, especially. Um, we could even have. Uh, memories of it shifted I think um, certainly like shifted and made more militaristic perhaps in Mordor itself so like the theme that is being developed, the musical theme that I'm thinking of I say that as if I'm thinking of one the musical theme that Philip will be thinking of uh, here um, is something that again ultimately I think we can be using in landscapes in Mordor uh, down the road Um, so yeah Lots of this right. is this is potentially a really a really important kind of theme, right? Because it's not just the spiders, right? As you're, as you're saying, exactly. It's, it's the the influence of Morgoth on the area there, yeah. Or, well, Sauron, really, but still, right, right, exactly. Um, which is going to be intensified when Sauron really moves into the place, you know, into yeah, Terranofuan and stuff, yeah, um, and and Tol and Garhoth as well, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So, but we don't have to, I mean, I know we're not going to have that much time, so we're not going to really be able to develop. Okay. But actually here, here, here's another side point. 
sort of side point, but related. The spiders. So one of my least favorite things about the depiction of Shelob in, um, in, in the movies, in the Jackson movies, and I don't just mean like the body of the spider itself that they, that they showed, which I was fine with. I thought that was good. But um, I'm thinking Shelob's lair in particular. I disliked the fact, and this is really hard, though. I mean, I have, I have a lot of sympathy. I'm not just trying to throw shade here. Um, it was like giant cobwebs, right? Just giant cobwebs. As if the thing that made Shelob scary was the fact that she was merely a spider of monstrous size. Now, a spider of monstrous size is very scary. Like, I'm not, uh, you know, like, that is, in many cases, sufficient. But the thing that is, that gets conveyed, like the, the mood that gets conveyed in the book, and which is intensified by the context of the Silmarillion, which we know was very much in Tolkien's mind when he was writing the Shelob's Lair chapter, because, of course, in the early drafts of the Shelob's Lair chapter, it's actually Ungoliant. Um, Ungoliant herself, who is living there. Um, and he changes it and decides to make it Ungoliant's offspring instead of Ungoliant herself. But in his first drafts, it was literally... So we know that Tolkien was thinking about Ungoliant. Um, and this and the... The things that we, you know, so we think back to the darkening of Valinor and everything, and, and th- that how the webs of Ungoliant are not just cobwebs of unusual size, right? Um, they are the unlight, right? The, this, this sort of like madness inducing darkness made tangible that like invades the mind and binds the body, and, and you know, that's what they're encountering in Shelob's lair, not just like giant cobwebs and skeletons. Um, Certainly part of what makes Shelob's Lair in the films not as scary is that it is so brightly lit. Yes. And yes. That, I mean, it just, it half the description in the book is how they can't see anything. And then you see this on film and you're like, but I can see everything. <laughs> right. And the other part is that there's not much anticipation as to what monster is lurking there when you see all the cobwebs and so on. So there's no anticipation of the reveal of the monster. It's clearly a giant spider. Right. Right. In the beginning. So, so yeah, I, I do think that there's not a lot of suspense in the way that was filmed. Yeah. Yeah. We have the opportunity to have multiple scenes in Nandangartheb, so we can have a little bit of anticipation here. But the audience have seen the place before. Aradha went through there, so they know there's giant spiders. Right. So you're right that there has to be some element that's new that they didn't know about, or else this feels like a retreading of something we've already seen. So right. this, the webs of unlight that they can't cut through would be scary because their their swords that they have, their weapons that they have, would not be able to get through the spider web stuff, right. and that that should be a surprise to everybody. <laughs> Right, right, exactly. Um, and if, again, if, if you block out the light, you can't block all the light, of course, because then you have voices on a dark set, and that's not particularly what film is meant to be. But right. you can have darkness used in a way that's creepier. Yeah, darkness is, I mean, obviously, darkness is challenging on film. I mean, like having the entire Shelob's Lair sequence happen in the pitch darkness would not be great viewing. 
right? I mean, that's that's you know depicting darkness, prolonged scenes that happen in darkness uh, on on screen is very. It's, it's challenging. It's not impossible, but it's challenging. Uh, I, I, Nick, I'd never heard that quote. Nick said, uh, Sean Astin on the set asked where the light was coming from in Shelob's lair. Uh, and the director of f- photography r- replied, the same place as the music. Um, <laughs> which is a fun answer. But again, it's, it's I mean, I, I kind of have to have to side with uh uh with with sean astin there um good now Stephen h and nick were both asking the question what weapons do the holodine have so obviously they're a pre-steel culture um so any steel that they have they've obtained through trade mm-hmm. with either elves or dwarves before they came into valerian for the most part so they don't have a lot of metal um weapons we saw a little cash uh, stockpiled during the stockade battle, so we've seen that they do have some swords. Right. Halif has their spear, right. which uh, she got from her dad. But that, I mean, it's a lot of bows and arrows, um, hatchets, right. you know, like, there's not a lot of military stuff. Right. They could have gotten some gear from Karanthir. He, he was trying to be helpful and nice a little bit, so right. he might have given them some gifts that they didn't tear down. Right. Um, they could have traded while they were camping next to Doria. The, mm-hmm. We know the dwarves come through there to trade, and there right. are, uh, there's other people there. So they have some weapons, but yeah, not a lot. And what they do have probably does not do any good against uh, spider webs, although presumably it has to be enough to damage the spiders themselves or else they're in trouble. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's not going to go well. Um, and, and I would think, by the way, this is a really wonderful opportunity. I know this is one of uh, uh, one of Stephen C.'s long-term issues uh, with fantasy TV. Um, uh, that is the wild and persistent preference of swords to spears uh, as primary weapons in fantasy film and television. Um, and I would think, Stephen, this is a wonderful spear opportunity, right? Because when you're fighting giant spiders, you want a spear. Uh, as Sam demonstrates, um, a sword can be useful, but only at very uncomfortably short range when you're going up against a giant spider. Sam attacking Shelob from the shortest range you possibly can, um, uh, you know, right up underneath her legs to attack her eyes and then underneath her belly. So, um, and that's that's not a winning strategy, you know, when they're trying to fight off the giant spiders. So, um, uh, spears. And so even like wooden spears like without spearheads just like long sharpened sticks i think would be many of them would have to be probably fighting with those um yeah yeah um yeah stephen h says it's easier to choreograph swords instead of spears um yeah true now sharon is pointing out that fire is going to be useful too and the one other advantage there is that fire would also be well, a way to make it not pitch dark all the time, but also to dramatize the the webs, right? Um, uh, like the, the 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 if you have, you know, everybody carrying torches, so you have a you know a well lit fire lit um, area, and then just like darkness invades, you know, or like like a section of the area is now covered in darkness, um, and you can you know 
we come closer and we see that that, that darkness is actually web, right? Um, but it, 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 torches certainly give us the opportunity to have darkness invading, right, um, in this sort of active way that, that you wouldn't have if you didn't have that kind of a bright light source on hand. And certainly I agree that um, people without a whole lot of armor or metal weapons fire, and especially if they're imagining fighting off, like, beasts or monsters that is not other humans or something like that, uh, fire and torches would be a, a very logical sort of weapon to have. Not to mention the fact that... Um, uh, Fire is also, uh, torches are also handy in that, like, even children can carry torches, uh, right? Which, you know, the the people that you don't want holding the spears can still hold torches, and that can still be useful for self-defense and perhaps warding off, um, uh, uh, you know, creatures. Um, Yes, yes. Yes. That makes a lot of sense. Okay, so if we focus on... So we can do a little bit to suggest that there's... And so what got me onto the shadow thing was thinking about the the kind of more, like, creepy, more kind of psychological or even spiritual struggle of going through Dungortheb, giant spiders aside. But I think that the darkness and the webs uh, of the spiders create a kind of, like, I don't know, middle term between, like, the ambiance on the one hand, the vague ambiance on the one hand, and the specific monsters attacking you on the other hand, right? That um, with with the webs, uh, we can have... The problem with it just being generally creepy is that we can't... There's nothing to depict of, like, what the danger is, what is causing it, right? And my fear is that if we make them, like looking around and being scared. It looks like it's just anticipation, like we're building up to something. Or like, you know, there's something out there that they can't see, and then the reveal is, oh, well, that's what it was really all about in the first place. It's going to be hard. Do you see what I mean by that? Like, like, as if their creepy feelings are merely our trying to convey to the audience their increasing trepidation that is going to be fulfilled by the spider attack, right? Instead of saying, like, well... There's two things. On the one hand, there's spiders. On the other hand, there's also this like free-floating, you know, magical turbulence that is freaking them out, and would be doing so even if there were no spiders around. That distinction is going to be really hard to draw. So if we have the the webs, it's still going to be all associated with the spiders, and I don't think we can. I don't think we have to resist that all the way, but um, at least we can use the webs perhaps as a mechanism to try to help to convey. There's more to fear in Nandungortheb than just getting eaten by spiders. Um, uh, it's not just a physical peril that they are in. Can we have somebody go crazy? I mean, can can somebody lose their mind? And and I mean, like just to show, like this is not just somebody freaking out and you know charging to their deaths or something like that. But I mean, can we can we show people who are like broken in mind and spirit even if they survive? Um, I don't know. I think yeah. there'll be an opportunity for that. Um, the final scene in Nandangortheb, the um, the way they handle it is how it takes her band of Amazons and goes and attacks a spider nest with the idea that that will draw the spiders to the nest to defend it. Right. And will allow the people who are left to exit the forest. So they're creating the opportunity for the people to escape by drawing off the spiders. 
and therefore the group of people who are being not part of the attack are the non-warriors in the group some of them could be at the end of their ropes as far as yeah. the mentality of going through the forest goes. yeah by the way I just thought of something that makes me absolutely love this plot line. Um, we need to have Haleth say not exactly the same words, but something along the lines of, I will do the stinging, right? This is exactly what Bilbo does with the dwarves in The Hobbit, right? Kind of like, I'm going to come in and I'm going to attack the spiders and make them all run over here while you guys escape, right? Uh, it's exactly the same tactics. That's awesome, right? Like to to show. I mean, that's that's like the perfect kind of Tolkienian pattern, right? Were you thinking about that? You were totally thinking about that, weren't you? I wasn't. Um, I can't speak for everyone in well, the group. Like, I mean, we were definitely making spider parallels throughout. So I don't recall who exactly thought of that diversionary tactic in but our it's, discussion. But it's perfect. It's perfect. I mean, it's exactly the same kind of, like, the thing that Tolkien always does in the Silmarillion, right? To have, like, the big version of it, like, the, the same scene, which is going to get echoed later on, but, like, on a smaller scale, right? Um, you know, just like Sam rescuing Frodo is like Fingon rescuing Mithros, but, you know, in smaller scale. Um, uh, you know, Frodo losing, having the ring bitten off and losing a finger is like Baron get, losing his hand, but, you know, in smaller scale. Um this is exactly like Bilbo rescuing the dwarves uh, from the spiders in Mirkwood, but on a bigger scale, right? Um, and that's awesome. I mean, that's 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 brilliant. It's perfect. It, it, there's nothing not to love about that. Um, so yeah, yeah. Um, and even the way in which um, the even the way in which uh, it's it established i mean even thinking about the parallels between what these moments mean for Hollett's character and her character development right um the, like with bilbo this is a turning point in her career right this is that moment when bilbo wakes up and kills the spider and then goes and rescues the dwarves is a massive massively important point uh in bilbo's own character development it's obviously it's not the same uh you know for Hollith mostly because she was never Bilbo to begin with but um uh but anyway i mean that 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 very significant kind of growing up moment um growing up in a different way and and under different circumstances but anyway no i, I there's just nothing not to love about the parallel it's it's uh, it's spectacular um is she also going to sing while doing it i you know it's the obvious question, right? I mean, Haleth doesn't really seem... Well, maybe. Maybe she's the singing type. Uh, it's, if she does, it'll certainly be probably a very different song. I would think it would be a different song. Um, but, you know, I, all we need it is... Would be, it would be closer to And They Sang As They Slew, like the Roharam at the right. field. It would than be. To, uh, lazy lob, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Lazy lob and crazy cob, probably not, but like, you know, adder cop, adder cop. Exactly. I'm kind of thinking like some, you know, is there like, we don't want to use the word adder cop because again, that's not in, it's not in Hollett's idiom. Right. But like, could we adapt it into Hollett's idiom somehow? Like mm-hmm. all we need is a parallel, right? Like her mocking the spiders. Um, Possibly, you know, as you're pointing out, in the actual scene of the rescue of Brill's father, right? Um, 
where she would be seeking to draw their attention away from him, right? Um, uh, I mean, all, all, all we really need to cement the parallel is her throwing something at them and shouting at them defiantly and mockingly, right? That's true. Even if she's not doing it in verse, even if she's not using, you know, funny made-up words, um, uh, it can be very much in Halleth's far more epic idiom than, you know, Bilbo's idiom. Um, but, you know, I think this seems doable. This seems doable to me. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, 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 uh, this is, uh, I, neither when I was reading the outline nor when I was thinking about this in preparation for last week when we were supposed to be having this discussion, did I think of this parallel at all? But it's like, it just jumps off the page once you see it. Uh, and there's just nothing not to love about that. Okay, awesome. Um, I think that's all of my questions about uh, about Holith. And, um, well, actually, one last question. How... Who's leading the people when she goes off to rescue the... Because we're running out of grown-ups, aren't we? There's some other named characters around, so one of them. One of them? (laughs) Okay. Yeah. I mean, we'll have somebody whose name has been happening on screen prior to that point. Um, It could be one of the adults who is maybe mildly injured and therefore can't do a full-on attack right now but right. can certainly lead the people you know well, something but okay. uh yeah I, I made sure there were plenty of names around the Palatine, so there should be somebody still alive who has a name that we could use that <laughs> right. as i say we're you know we had two primary grown-ups right other than Haleth, and we've killed one already and the other one's being rescued so uh we've got the kid right we've got haldan uh but he's mm-hmm. too he can't lead the people obviously yeah. so well, yeah. in the in the meeting with Karanthir, I gave Halith two seconds basically, and one of them was Grill's father. The other one was the the cook who had been uh, kind of holding the fort together, right? And collaborating with Halith in that way. She so, would be a very logical, but if if she's and she's not going to be it, like one of the Amazons, right? I mean, she could be. I, I don't know. I didn't um, ask Rihanna if she was planning on making that character in one of the Amazons the same thing, but. It, like, there are people like that where we yeah. can just have somebody lead the, the people out right. because Hal told them to, and then it's still Hal's leadership. Right, right. Yeah, um, right. Yeah. Stephen says someone who grasps Halith's plan better than the rest. Exactly, As Stephen. You're thinking exactly what I'm thinking, which is we need a Balin figure. That's just what I was looking for, basically. Yes. Yeah. Um, that's exactly it. Um. Okay. Okay. Good. Yeah. I, I, it, it, it doesn't have to be a major role. I just, one of the obvious potential flaws is if we show Holleth and all of her warriors charging off, that's a great idea. But like, what are you going to like leave everybody else to just like sit there and, and, you know, cower in front? Somebody has to be there to be like, okay, come on folks. So that's, um, but I, I agree the, that the cook figure I think is, is a very logical one. Um, I think that would work really yeah. well. So yeah, I, I think we have enough people we can 
Cool. We can make it work. As long as I haven't killed them all yeah. off yet. You know, we got to be economical yeah, with I, this I, kind of thing. There was a reason I named all these characters. <laughs> that's good. That's good. Yeah, exactly. We need to have some left at the end of the day. So that's good. That's good. Awesome. Okay. With that frame, we finally get to the frame discussion. So um, Gandalf in Harad, we've talked a lot about this storyline and the scenes and everything. Um, uh, Sauron's the reason for the season and all that. But um, we're in the first five episodes so this is the summary of the frame. And the frames are quite short, right? So we're, we're not really able to develop much uh, in the frames. Two scenes per episode. Two scenes per episode, right. So we have Gandalf's arrival, and our two scenes are him on the ship, right, at the beginning, and then his arrival. That one has three, because it's the first one. So it's okay. him on the ship, his arrival, seeing the bazaar in the, in the city, and then... Um, meeting the queen He's taken at to the, the queen. end of the episode. Right, okay. Yeah. So we do get to meet the location and we get to meet the people. The okay. three primary characters. All right, yep, that makes sense. And so we're, we're going to establish the the two sons, like in their basic character, like, like so the the kind of a general uh, invitation to see perceive the Boromir, Faramir uh, parallels uh, and things to kind of see a little bit. By episode three, hopefully, that's the that vibe the audience will get. Yeah, yeah, yeah um, right. By episode three, episode sure. three focuses on the, the conflict between the sons. Sure. Okay, great. Conflict. I mean, brotherly. Right. Right. Of heads. Difference <laughs> of opinions and uh, differences of views. Right. Okay, so then in episode two, we have the... So at the end of episode one, the episode one frame, um, he meets the queen. Is there any, like... This is just like, oh, in Kanos, I had no idea you were still in business kind of conversation, right? Um, but nothing is kind of, deter- you know, we don't get anything other than like, you know, you are welcome among us, basically, and we kind of leave it at that, right? Um, and then, so in, in episode two is when we're beginning to see, like, what is Gandalf going to be doing down here, right? And so, okay, so, exactly. and this is where... So a private private conversation between Gandalf and the Queen and the where queen. they can speak to one another. Right at the beginning to sort of show that she she she's interested in hiring a tutor for her sons, uh, and then the second scene is him agreeing to that, or uh, actually um, walking in to the okay. classroom where right. the right. sons are. Okay, like so we classroom. again. I mean, they're right. they're grown, of but. course. Right, so. It's, Beginning like the the setup for he begins his relationship with the two sons basically okay and so then episode three focuses on that right we've got uh, Inkanu's teaching uh, the sons lessons about leadership which should sound vaguely familiar and then um, we establish more of the characters of the sons and that's where we really begin to see the Faramir Boromir thing. Um, uh, come out oh awesome nick you, you you guys are planning to do tolkien's beowulf introduction nice so he's gonna walk into the room speaking when he comes in <laughs> nice i like it i like it very cool um uh which of the two sons or both of them give him strange and funny looks when he's doing this like somebody has to think that uh this Incanus fellow is fairly odd um 
as by all accounts many of Tolkien's students thought him fairly odd when he came walking into the room reciting Beowulf uh, in Old English. Um, uh, are we going to have... What is our thought about the um, interaction, like, or rather the attitude towards him by the two sons? Are, are those going to differ? Are they both going to be kind of resistant or both friendly? Or how are we starting with that? The younger son is the more book learning guy. So at least at first, he's, he's you know, the more Faramir character, Wizards People. So right. his relationship with Inconus is friendlier and a little bit more quick to grasp the ideas that Inconus is talking about. Right. Um, that will change over the course of the season, but that's the initial starting point. Right. He's the one who first met Inconus in the marketplace in episode one. He would be like enthusiastic, right? Right. Right. So the audience is primed to focus on that relationship more. The older brother is just kind of there in the first episode. And by showing the difference between the brothers, the audience is invited to think that the younger brother is probably better suited for leadership right. than his older brother. Okay. Um, okay. That makes sense. So the first time we see the older brother do something that's remotely useful is in episode four where he accompanies Gandalf and sees what the Cult of Sauron is up to. Okay, so now have the, I know I remember that we were going to have, we were going to see a street preacher in episode one. Like, it's just part of the set. Correct. Right, to sort of Correct. know that that's happening. Um, were there, before episode, between that and episode four, is there going to be any sort of hints or, uh, you know, glances of you know, the Mouth of Sauron activity? No, the Mouth of Sauron doesn't arrive until episode five. Right. So, yeah, no, I, I just meant in general, like the kind of Sauron Yeah, but cult. as far as the cult, yeah, I mean, mentioned in dialogue kind of thing in passing, but not, we don't see what they're doing. Okay. Until okay. episode four, there's some animal sacrifices going on. And it's basically implied that this is secretive and illegal in that not a thing that's supposed to be happening so that the cult of Sauron has escalated from what they usually do to this newer version. Right. Right. The renewal of the cult of Sauron, so to speak. Right. Um, by the way, so one thing that I felt like I have to comment on blood magic, right? The phrase blood magic, right? I love it. Here's what I love about it. Here's what I love about it. What I love about it is that it's not like Tolkien doesn't talk about that kind of thing, right? And yet what I like about it is that it sounds like exactly the kind of thing that the cult of Sauron would do, right? If Sauron's plan, right, Sauron's long-term strategy is to induce the people to do more and more horrible things, like we're, we're working our way up towards slavery and human sacrifice, like in Numenor, right? With the goal of like actively corrupting them. Like he wants to bring them to a point where he can dominate and control them and get them to do anything he wants them to do, no matter how horrible it is, right? He wants to, he's actively sur uh, uh, attempting to squash any kind of ethical or moral resistance they're going to have to any command that he's going to give them, right? He's trying to basically orcify them as time goes on, right? That's his goal. 
But so how does he do that? Well, one way in which he would do that would be to say, hey, by performing these actions, which you would normally have considered at least distasteful, if not actually obscene in some way, um, you should do that. You should be willing to do this because it's going to give you power. Right. Like there's there's payoff to this right now. It doesn't have to be true. Right. But that's the line. Right. That's the you know, that that that, um, you know, by by worshiping the darkness, right, by performing these acts, it's going to make you strong. I, he totally would try to sell them on that, even if it's not there doesn't have to be any truth to it at all. You know, and but like also it's not a complete lie either because he's putting forth power. As well, he's dispersing his own power among his followers, um, so there can be actual manifestations of power. Um, I don't think it has to be. I don't think that we have to suggest that it is like objectively true that if I mean, like, there are many fantasy systems in which blood magic is a kind of a bigger thing, right? That like, you know, there's an actual like, uh, you know kind of power translation factor between blood and, you know, uh, blood sacrifice and some kind of magical force or power. I don't think that we have to imply that that's actually how the world works in general in Tolkien's world. In fact, I think we can imply that that's not, in fact, generally how the world works. But it is, um, it seems to me, a very logical mechanism by which Sauron would attempt to deceive the people. Right. We were trying to come up with something that was less egregious than human sacrifice and came up with animal sacrifice. Right. No, that, it's a very logical step. It's a very logical step. I like that a lot. Um, even, I like the fact that you're starting with birds. Right? I mean, that's not even a huge deal, right? It's just, 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 and I say it's not a huge deal because remember, like, it might seem like a huge deal to modern people to kill birds, but it's not a huge, people kill birds all the time, you know, like. See, yeah, killing birds to eat them is culturally normal. acceptable in most yes. cultures. Exactly, right, in, 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 in most cultures like this, like, you know, your, your average housewife would like wring the neck of a, you know, a, of a chicken or something and, and, you know, to kill it, to, to dress it and eat it, you know, in, like, without, a blink or a qualm, right? So the idea of killing animals is not going to be like, a, you know, a massive taboo to be transgressed and therefore is a very logical step one, right? Except it's right. different, and right? It's not the same. It's not like, you know, yeah. Right, because it's wasteful. And and that's that's the, and it's secret. So like, there's something clearly wrong about it. And that that's what we were trying to convey there. It is tricky though, because yeah, we can't have, the the prince of the city be like oh no someone has killed a bird right right how could anyone kill a bird that's horrible right yeah exactly exactly right i mean it would look puzzling it would be weird like but to kill a bunch of birds and leave them laying dead that's weird different why would anyone do that yes yes yeah so it's just weird and like huh okay that's odd and when gandalf explains that it's a magic sacrifice kind of thing going on then he's horrified that people would do it for that reason. Right. Like, right. wait, kill all these birds just for that? Like, why would you do that? Right. So right. so at that point, the older brother is pretty convinced that the Call of Sauron is doing things they shouldn't be doing. Okay. 
because okay. he's seen it and he's he's aware that this is a transgression. Um, now, how is it how is it tied explicitly to Sauron? Um, Gandalf says it is. Oh, okay, so it's just Gandalf's word. Okay. <laughs> yes. Okay. No, that's good. That's that's enough. It's certainly enough for the viewer. So uh, do we do we do we think the do we think the older brother except. Like I'm wondering, I'm wondering if like he he kind of he's so obviously he'll be unnerved and disturbed by this because as because even if he doesn't immediately appreciate the significance, he would find it weird. Mm-hmm. Um, do we think he do we think he he accepts Gandalf's explanation and and attribution to cult of Sauron, or is or is is oh, he at the point now where there's an altar? stone there okay. so it can have markings on it that yeah, in. if we need if we need physical evidence there is a physical evidence gotcha. so well i was kind of wondering if if he might be like you know what really no i know some of those guys they're fine guys they're they wouldn't kill birds like i'm wondering if he like might have some like some 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 skepticism right a little pushback like, like what's to... his like yeah. what's his pre-existing view of the cult of sauron <laughs> He thinks it's part of the past, and he's not interested in the past. Okay. So the younger brother is well aware of the history with Numenor and all of that stuff. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was 3,000 years ago. So the older brother, who's not into that sort of thing, doesn't care. So It's just ancient history. I wonder if he would be more dismissive. Like, he'd he'd think this is weird, but he wouldn't think it was, like, sinister or dangerous. And I wonder if he, like, thinks that the Cult of Sauron is, like, the local Elks Lodge. And it's like, oh, those those are friendly chaps. I get drinks with them sometimes. Just wondering. I I think he might have some of that in his background. And it's because he makes this discovery with Gandalf standing right there that he's able to grasp that this is something serious. Makes sense. Yeah, right. so it, it's Gandalf's fault. <laughs> Gandalf's right. influence. Well, as usual. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Okay. All right. So then in, in episode five is then when the mouth of Sauron comes to town. Um, mm-hmm. Are we going to show... So our two scenes, is it going to be the mouth of Sauron literally coming to town or the mouth of Sauron coming before the queen? Or how are we introduced to the mouth of Sauron specifically? Right. So in the first scene, it's the Mouth of Sauron petitioning to reopen and rebuild the temple. And they need permission from the city to do that, I guess, or some support. So it's a a public petition to whatever lawmaking body is in charge of these sorts of things to get permission to do that. Um, So the queen would be involved, also the Council of Elders probably as well. And the queen doesn't give an immediate answer. It's more of the like, oh, I will consider your petition kind of answer. Right. Right. The younger son gets upset that she didn't immediately shoot this down. So the mm. younger son is more adamantly anti Cult of Sauron to start with. Uh, on account of the we don't want people influencing our city and, and stuff, you know, like So So would the he... younger son and Gandalf have that conversation in the second scene about how you make these sorts of decisions. Okay. So is the the younger son's objection is based on a these are like um you know alien elements invading our culture and trying to, you know, take over our history. Um like is that the 
the problem or is it because he was the one who's more interested in history right so he is in that way a little bit more and predisposed more aware, to, yeah. to, to, li to like the, you know, or to think well of the cult of Sauron given its place in the history of the town um, and he would appreciate the history of the temple I mean I, would he be pro I mean like would he be kind of excited about the idea of the temple being rebuilt or what, what's, or is, or is he like, no, you're desecrating or not desecrating, but you're like, um, you know, it belongs in a museum. Like I mean, what, what, what's his, uh, what's his attitude towards the temple in that way? It's more the museum. Like yeah. this is part of our heritage, but it's not active. And the, the council of elders doesn't support the cult of Sauron and the queen doesn't support the cult of Sauron. So the cult of Sauron is mostly getting support from common people right. in the town. And that's what Gandalf's point is, is like, wait, like the reason your mother can't shut this down instantly is because there's people who do have a positive opinion here right. and would feel like something's being taken away from them. And so she has to tread very carefully in how she makes her decision. So we were thinking that he would be strong this more strongly anti-cult of sauron and the older brothers more the hey i get drinks with these guys everything's fine okay um to start with and right. both of them change their opinions over time so the older son becomes more adamant that this new cult of sauron is a problem and the younger son is more and more willing to listen to what they have to say right right yeah no and i'm um yeah i'm more thinking of i'm trying to still trying to wrap my head around the premise of the younger son's objection because it's easier for me to imagine how he would be not necessarily, I mean, even if he's not pro rebuilding the ruins that he would still be more positively disposed towards this or not, or less resistant. So I'm trying to understand he's his, his reaction. Yes. Yeah, there, there is a place to get a foot in the door with him. Right because of that so right. we are going to show him later reconsidering but his initial adamant rejection of it was kind of necessary because he's gonna be the one who joins them right so eventually we have to see what his objection was to have that objection overcome right okay and nick is reminding me that or uh, nick is gently pointing out that i am underplaying the class dynamic here with the cult of Sauron and the ruling family, right? That um, it's a direct challenge. Well, not only that, but I can also see if, if the younger son, if the younger brother thinks of this movement to rebuild the ruins of the temple is like the ignorant enthusiasm of the people who don't really understand the history and don't understand the significance of those ruins for the history of their town and what that means. And they're just like, like to him, it's like they're wanting to what, like build a new party center, you know, on like the ancient historical ruins of their, t you know, the, the, like the, 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 the cornerstone of the ancient history of their, of their town. Um, and that would seem to him mockery version. Yes. Right. Yes, exactly. Um, uh, so he would find it sort of repulsive in that way, in a kind of like classist way, right? Like the, the ignorant populace don't get it. They don't understand. Um, uh, they're being disrespectful 
a of our city and its history and b of the ruling family here right like they're 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 you know this is as nick was pointing out it's kind of a challenge to their power um the cult is sort of a challenge to their power and the and the the mobilization of the people in support of this um is at least implicitly or at least potentially a challenge it'll be more explicitly a challenge to their power later on but even from the very beginning there's like the opportunity for that so how much of a gap, how much tension, class tension, are we imagining in the city prior to the arrival of the Mouth of Sauron? I mean, obviously, there's got to be something for the Mouth of Sauron to work with relatively efficiently, right, in order for our story to move forward at the rate we need to move forward. Um, so th- there can't be, again, can't be from scratch. We can't, like, it'll be all one huge happy family in episode one, and then, you know, the city is sharply divided, and we're getting out the pitchforks and getting ready to overthrow the queen by episode, you know, seven or whatever the appearance of one big happy family is i think what's there in the beginning but instead of saying that it comes out of nowhere it's more you know the cracks of the system are revealed as time goes on right so this arrival of the mouth of sauron brings that to the forefront in a way that it wouldn't have come up before right because this is a town that's ruled by oligarchs and it's a trading center Right. which means the oligarchs are controlling the money. And everyone who lives in the town probably has to pay fees and tolls to have right. their books parked in places and to have their yes. booths in the bazaar and all of that. So it's not too difficult to tell people that the ruling class is taking advantage of you and all your hard work is going into their pockets. Like, yes. It's really not hard to start that message up. Mm-hmm. especially mm-hmm. if the ruling class disrespects your beloved cultural festival. Right, right, right. So it's, that'll just be a spark to tip Right, and that's going to be the, real, the, 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 the wedge that the Mouth of Sauron is going to use to really widen the gap and, and, and yeah. exacerbate that. Yes, yeah. So I, I like the, if, the, if we can see some really clear sort of classism you know, and, uh, uh, you know, class-based prejudice on the part of the younger son in this reaction, right? That's one way I think that we could really show those, because it's not like it's a new thing, right? It, w- it would clearly be evidence that there's a kind of distrust, that, there's a, that there is a pre-existing sense of us and them between, you know, the ruling class, the oligarch class, and the, uh, and the people. Um, and it would put his the his interest in history gives gives us a a good opportunity like a, a good kind of foundation for that that doesn't just make him look like a jerk completely right he can look like a little bit of a jerk that's okay um but instead of it just being like you know i'm upset about this because it's now revealed that i generally hate poor people instead it's like i really appreciate our heritage and they just don't right you know they just don't um and uh, and and that's you know so th- there can be a little bit of like see that's what I'm all about kind of uh, uh, element uh, to this uh, from him. Okay, that works. I can I can I can I got I'm I'm oriented towards that now. I, I I see it now. How does how does the older brother respond to this in conjunction with what just happened in episode four? I mean, is he like 
eyeing up the mouth of Sauron, looking for blood splatters. I mean, is is he still thinking? And I mean, is he cautioning his mother uh, in conjunction with the episode four stuff? Or yeah, so so he's not. Oh, he's like certainly not appearing not in this episode. Uh oh. We're losing Marie here a little bit. Uh oh. A very susp- suspenseful, slow unfolding of uh, Marie, Marie's right. thoughts on this. But he will show up. The The idea is that he will challenge... Right. Sorry. Oh, no, that's okay. That's okay. I'm sorry. Sorry, I know from your perspective I'm just interrupting you. Uh, <laughs> I, I, so try again. So no worries. Um, we, we, we got as far as sir not appearing son, in this episode. The older son is going to challenge... Right, he does not appear in episode five. He will, in a later episode, challenge a street preacher. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. And that's where we'll get his opinion on what's going on with the Celt of Sauron. So we just have him not there at all in episode five, so this is just the mom and the younger son. And Gandalf is there? Yes. Yes, Gandalf yes. is there. Okay. Because Gandalf is talking to the younger son, specifically. Yes. So, okay. Yes. Okay. Great. Great. Okay. Um... Hmm. I'm making my do we go on to the next slide or not face because uh, we got through our discussion of the frame which was really good the other thing that we wanted to discuss um, was some to, to be thinking through some more of the the general ways in which elves and humans are different and see things differently um, to be thinking towards <clears throat> how we might want to represent this uh, in uh, um, in future episodes. That's that's like a five minute topic, right? That's what I'm thinking. Yeah, I mean that was pretty much my estimate. Also, um, go for it then. I'm also thinking we have two slides. Maybe we could do one tonight, and then, well, okay, let's let's do one bit anyway. Um, Let's let's do a bit for sure. Let's do a bit. Okay, so the first thing is the differing natures of elves and and men. Um, So one topic that we've been discussing, people were discussing on the uh, the discussion boards as well, their relationship with nature, their attitude, like the way that the different natures of elves and men lead to them reacting with their, with nature, with their environments, uh, in very different ways. Um, and the one suggestion, one thought here is that men are likely to view nature as raw materials, um, and their interaction with nature is more likely to be like a struggle. Like it's them versus nature, you know, sort of from their perspective. Uh, whereas the elves are likely to view nature as something to work with symbiotically and their interaction is love or play. That seems to me, um, uh, that seems to me really, um, generally true. I mean, one thing, one, one little proviso that I would make there. Sometimes I think that people, Tolkien fans often tend to overstate the, 
like elves hunt and people forget that elves hunt, you know, um, like killing things for sport or at least for food is a thing that elves do, you know, so a lot of times people go, I think, too far in imagining elves being like, we are, you know, we love all living creatures and like all living creatures are our friends. They are to some extent. I mean, that's not completely wrong. It's not completely off, but um, it, to the point where in a lot of times in conversations with Tolkien fans, I get the impression that a lot of people assume that all elves are vegetarians, which they're not. Right. Um, so. I would want to make sure that we're kind of thinking about that. I mean, we need to understand that in the context, because I, I agree with the general context, like their attitude towards nature. There is not at all the same element of, you know, the war with the environment. Right. Like, you know, the natural world around us is trying to kill us and we're trying to survive. Right. So we've got to cut down the trees and burn them for fuel. We've got to clear space to grow crops. We've got to domesticate animals. We've got to, you know, it's like, it's like us versus nature. Um, and that kind of survival, um, uh, attitude is certainly one that, that would be wholly alien to the elves. They just would not, um, no matter what their circumstances, they would not even be thinking about, you know, their surroundings like that in the natural world like that. Um, but they do hunt. They do eat meat. Um, so, uh, you know, there's and, and there is going to be some element of things like domestication and agriculture among the elves as well. I don't think that we depict all elves, some elves perhaps, as like you know, hunter, like the, the, the green elves can be primarily like hunter gatherer culture. I don't see them farming, you know, I don't see them, um, domesticating animals. Um, but, um, but like the Sindar, the Noldor, the Noldor are certainly going to farm, right? I mean, right. The Noldor would certainly farm. Um, uh, obviously like in Tomb Laden, You'd better farm, right? Because how else are you going to live? How else are you going to support the population of Gondolin inside the Valley of Tomb Laden if you don't have agriculture, right? So obviously there is going to be some, and, and even that element, like thinking about agriculture itself um, and what agriculture means. Um, when I think about agriculture and, and, and what agriculture means, I, um, I specifically think about um, the both the parallel and the contrast between, and it's a very uncomfortable parallel between the Entwives and Saruman, right? Um, from Treebeard's perspective, there are definite similarities between the attitude of the Ent that, that he attributes to the Entwives, right? They will to dominate living things, the Entwives, right? I mean, that's what it means. When you, plant things in rows and you make them grow in rows, right? And you kill all other plants that are trying to grow in that, you know, you, you, you pull up weeds, right? Um, and you make crops grow. Um, you are asserting your will. Uh, you are dominating the landscape, right? You are determining what's going to grow and what's not going to grow. Um, and there are parallels between that kind of that kind of fixed domination. Again, the contrast that Treebeard suggests between the, the Ents and the Entwives, right? That the, um, 
the Ents were willing to wander in the forest and find fruit and eat it, whereas the Ent wives wanted things to grow when and where they said they would grow and produce the fruit that they wanted them to produce. This doesn't mean the Ent wives were evil or that thing is an evil thing. But again, like it's like a spectrum, right? I mean, it's, it's, on, this, it's on that spectrum. It's, it's, it's on the benign end of that spectrum, but it's still, there is that kind of element to it. Um, so anyway, that's, that, that, that issue is one of the things that I think of when I think about, like, so when I'm trying to, an- to, to answer the question of something like, how does elvish agriculture differ from human agriculture? Now we've talked, have we talked about this before? I have a vague memory of talking about agriculture yes. before. I believe it came up when the elves first came into Valerian from Valinor and they were encamped at Lake Nethroom. I believe that's when we discussed it first. But the idea is that maybe they wouldn't be so much into monoculture, but right. they would have multiple crops all growing together in a way that wouldn't be the nice neat rows right. that you're used to seeing in human agriculture. Right. Um, so that it might look a little different when they do it and right. they wouldn't need to have the same level of production to feed their people that humans need. Right. So it's not all about maximizing production value and and maximizing labor efficiency as well. Right. Is another exactly. which is going to, to be care- a much lesser concern. Right. So you don't need to clear cut and then plant your crops. Right. You can, you know, pick and choose which trees you take out. Right. <laughs> you still take out trees, right. but not. Yeah, yeah, exactly. No, I I think that's that's a that that would be a really interesting way to so I mean because the thing is we need to have the differences between humans and elves, but we can't we can't go too far, right? We can't just be like the elves looking at humans cutting down trees and sowing fields and being like, "What are they doing to the plants?" I don't they would understand what they're doing. They would just be like, "Why are you doing it like that?" Like that's holy cow, Like that's really extreme, isn't it? Like, do you have to go so far as that? Like, did that tree really need to die in order for you to, you know, plant your wheat? Like, we get the wheat planting thing, but come on, man. Like, seriously? Um, whereas the humans would look at elvish fields and they would just be like, D- boy, you know, how do you guys harvest even? Like, what, uh, you know... And, and how do you um, the quantities, Marie, is an interesting thing, too, because elves would require less food. Right? I mean, they're just they're just hardier. Like they don't they can they can live without food for long periods of time, like Mithros hanging on the cliff, for instance. Right. That's yeah. an extreme example. But still, like it's it's um, um, yeah, I mean, the, the, the humans are physically frailer and and therefore require more and more regular stuff. So that would be another thing that I would think, because I'm trying to imagine like, you know, the elf visiting human farmland and human visiting elf farmland and the kinds of react, the things they would notice, right? The things that would really jump out at the most that would kind of express some of these, some of these differences. Now it's not just about, I don't want to make it just about agriculture, but that strikes me as an interesting kind of uh, example you know, sort of illustration of some of these things. How about hunting? How would human hunting and elvish hunting be different? I'm not sure it would look a lot different. Um, we definitely show elves hunting in Silicon up to this point, and we'll show humans hunting as well. Maybe a slightly more 
kill everything approach on the human side. Right. But right. I'm not sure it's going to look a lot different. And a kind of, uh, uh, more collateral damage, uh, as I think you're, you're suggesting to the, you know, more willing to, um, yeah. Okay, I don't know enough about like historical hunting techniques to uh, uh, to really speak uh, uh, with much information about this, but the general. I, so I don't know exactly how to convey it, but the general um, atmosphere that I'm thinking of as a difference is that the humans being much more disruptive to the entire. So, okay, I have an example beaters, right? Like lines of beaters just driving every living thing before them. Um, and you're killing some of the things, but other things you're just messing with and some of them die anyway. And elves would never hunt that way, right? They would never have a line of beaters just driving all of the, um, they would be, you know, they would hunt like an animal would hunt, right? You know, they would, they would stalk, uh, 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 you know, they would hunt more like a predator would hunt. You know, they would single out a quarry and they might stalk that quarry, but they're not going to mess with anything else while they're stalking, you know, the one quarry. Whereas um, with the humans, um, uh, nets, they would also not, uh, the elves, I would, like, again, I'm thinking like large sloppy nets and snares, Right, because there's going to be a lot of collateral damage and snares too, right? Right. What about, right. What about dogs? Yes. We know the elves have hunting dogs. Um, but the elves, they aren't, they aren't treeing animals Ex with packs of dogs. Or their dogs are differently and better trained. I mean, like, yeah. Huan is an extreme example, of course, but... <laughs> uh, but but even non-Huan elvish hunting dogs would would not be acting like, you know, uh, a, your normal um, uh, pack. That's the word I'm looking for. Herd? Crowd? What's that? Pack, yes. A, a, pack, yeah. a pack. A normal, like, pack of hounds, which is going to, uh, you know, cause a lot of ruckus everywhere they go and, like, start ripping the game to pieces, you know, and, uh, you know, when they corner it and stuff like that. That's, um, it actually would be really fun. It'd be tempting to do this with Huan, which is, again, he's kind of a bad data point when it comes to elvish hunting hounds, but... Um, it would be um, um, it would be really interesting to sort of show, you know, an elf with 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 dog hunting um, compared. Cause I'm thinking like they would hunt with like one or two dogs, whereas like not again like we're unleashing unleashing this huge pack who's going to do most of the work for us, you know, which is yeah. often yeah. how. Back in know. Valinor, we showed Fingen hunting with a hawk. Um, Right. So again, it's one animal doing the hunting for you, and the hawk is well enough trained that it does what he told us to do, essentially. Right, right. So. exactly, exactly. Or so it might have been a falcon. I can't recall now, but it was definitely birding with yeah, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. bird of prey. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I think that that's a really good um, that that's a really good illustration. Um, yeah. So 
imagining the elvish reaction to like an unruly herd of herd there I went again pack what's so hard with that word an unruly pack of of dogs just going and like treeing things and and killing things uh you know which are not even what they were hunting and um uh whereas which would be just very very different and seem disruptive and wasteful, kind of like what we were talking about last time with the pigs, you know, in uh, Assyria and um, causing lots of collateral damage like, you know, like herds of pigs do cause um, uh, in woodlands. Um, so we, we can show their hunting packs doing similar, uh, doing similar things. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and again, as um, Nick was talking about the the with with the hunting as well we can see the time thing is a big difference right you know the humans are out hunting and they want to be home for dinner because they're bringing dinner with them when they get home right um the elves you know an elf hunter even one who is intending to eat the deer once it's slain could spend any amount of time right i mean the stalking could last for days like it's it, you know it, uh, it, it's they would not mind they would take their time with that um uh both because again more hardy less need for food um but also just again because they don't there's no time pressure they don't care like it's if they're off hunting well that's what they're doing isn't it so that's what they could do for months at a time um Yes, yes. And you're right, Nick, that elves hunt because they love it, like anything else they do. You know, they, they, uh, um, and, and it's not just herbivores that they love. They love carnivores too, right? You know, and so, like, participating in the spirit of the hunt, you know, um, like a carnivore is part of, that's part of the natural experience as well. That's part of, um, you know, having that kind there is a sense in which that is also an expression of love for the like system that Yavana has set up uh, in the world. Right. Um, it's part of, it's part of how things work. Um, yeah. I'm kind, of, I'm kind of imagining elves, like, like the elf, the elf equivalent of like going out hunting for a hunting trip. Like if you if you like tell your loved ones you're going out hunting, is the expectation that you'll be gone for like a month or two? Uh, easily, easily before they even notice you're gone. Mostly, yeah. I mean, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, that would be a short hunting trip. I mean, Finrod yeah. goes on a hunting trip to Assyrian from Narthrond, right? I mean, <laughs> like it's it would take him months to get there, you know, weeks to get there, you know, not to mention the time that he spends hunting while there, right? So I, I, I got to imagine that particular hunting trip, even had it not been a particularly eventful one, as it turned out, he probably would have been gone for a, a year or two, right? Possibly, very likely, in that hunting trip, that would seem to at be at least months. At least months, yeah, minimum, minimum. Yeah, yeah. No, I like that. I think that that's. Um, would there be a difference? How would elves? What would be the difference in their uh, in their butchery practices, like how what they did with the animals that they kill? 
I doubt the... we'll ever show that on screen. Yeah, simply for the reason that showing the butchering of an animal is a bit hardcore. Right. Agreed. I mean, you can show battle scenes all you want, but killing and butchering an animal is pretty much going to be an R rating, I would think. <laughs> right, right. No, I'm just thinking, uh, even like in the post, uh, even if like Bilbo, uh, we only show meat being delivered fresh from the butchers, um, how that's done. So uh, one of the things that I'm thinking of is I'm imagining Goadriel going to the camp, right, of the people who shall become the people of Hador and um, seeing, like, deer carcasses strung up or even just, like, sides of meat strung up and being... Sure, sure. Like, that's yeah, not yeah, how elves would do that, right? Right, right. So if we see a human butcher shop in the little village, that would be a clear indication that this is different from how elves handle it. Right. Which is making me think of how would they handle it. I mean... Um, in a lot of cultures, you kill and butcher the animal immediately before preparing it. So whoever is doing the cooking would be handling that kind of thing. Right. So you wouldn't butcher it and have slabs of meat laying around right. to sell to somebody. To, like, you know what I mean? You would do it all at once. Yeah, yeah. So that um, might be the difference. Right, right. You know, it's still one of my lingering memories of Oxford, actually. When I visited Oxford when I was in college and I went down to the market at Oxford and like there was this butcher stall with like live whole deer with the skins on and, uh, you know, pheasants and things like that. So there was like a game stall in this like in downtown Oxford. And I like just I, like in America had never just like wandered into a store and seen like carcass, you know, hanging there like that. It was I was like, whoa, okay. I mean, that was very strange. That was very different for me. Um, uh, and that's kind of that's it's that that memory is kind of what I'm kind of coming back to, imagining Galadriel's response. Like, okay, so like again, hunting. It's not like she would be like, what you slay animals? Like that would not be her response. But like you treat them like this? Like, you, you not only kill them, but then you, like, hang them on hooks? And you, like, you know, we just... Yeah, it would be... It would be different. It would be... It would be... And again, it would be betraying the different attitude, right? Um, like, this is... Like, that, that, that whole raw material versus um, more symbiotic relationship. Like, we are in... A, an active relationship with these other creatures, which does involve us hunting them and eating them as well. Like that's part of the relationship. Uh, but you know, it's not there. It's not like, we're, it's like the humans would be just like harvesting the meat. Um, and they would be treating the carcasses like they treat logs of hewn trees, which also would be shocking in its own way. Right. I mean, I would think that like a, a human, they wouldn't have a sawmill, like literally a sawmill, but like, a, you know, a, like a, a human lumber yard of some kind. Right. You know, with just bunches of trees lying there, you know, sort of lopped and waiting, uh, you know, uh, further further treatment might be equally shocking uh, to Galadriel and in a very similar way. Yeah, the lack of respect, Nick, exactly the lack of respect um, because the humans would not respect 
nature in the same way. Nature, like, if they respect nature, it's as one respects, you know, like, a worthy adversary. Like, not quite. It's not like nature is their enemy, but, you know, a challenge to be overcome. Uh um, and it's not like they're triumphing over nature. And um, again, it's, it's not it's not like they have an active enmity with nature, but um, certainly a kind of callousness that the elves would not would not have a depersonalization of the other living creatures. Right. They don't consider certainly the plants um, and, um, uh, and 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 even the animals as like their fellow creatures uh, in the way, you know, as something closer to, not exactly peers, but closer to peers, right, would be the, the more of the elvish attitude towards them. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, the, uh, Sharon asks, where in the texts are we seeing this difference? And it's a really good question. One of the primary places that we s- see it is in um, Lothlorien, right? And the whole, like, way Lothlorien works, right? The kind of... Uh, the structure of Lothlorien and the way that Lothlorien is built and developed suggests more of that kind of symbiotic relationship than uh, the kind of, again, thinking, contrasting that, for instance, with the uh, tensor relationship between the hobbits and the old forest, right? Um, You know, as we discussed in Exploring the Lord of the Rings, what we're seeing there is very much like uh, the farmers and the forest can't be friends, right? Like you just, like, forests and farmers don't get along. Like, you know, they have... uh, mutually exclusive <laughs> goals and um, they're going to be um, I was going to say at loggerheads but that would be an insensitive word to use in, 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 under the circumstances but um, anyway the the elves don't seem to be like that however again you know uh, Sharon one thing I'd add is that again people I think Tolkien readers often overstate it like what do what do the hobbits sit on when they're eating with the elves in Woodhall? Sawn logs is what they is what they sit on, right? So it's not like elves would never harm trees. They do harm trees, um, and of course, like what are the flats built of wood, right? I mean, like they 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 saw planks, you know, they 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 shape wood. Um, so like the hunting, it's not like they're not going to fell trees ever. It's not like they're not going to use wood. It's not even like they're going to be even processing wood, making planks and things like that. But I do think that they would do it differently. Again, one of the um, one of the uh, uh, kind of thoughts about this, one of the, one of the things that we're trying to sort of extrapolate here is how do the differing how are the differing natures of elves and men expressed, right? Um, and the mere long, t- like the, the mere longevity of the elves and not because, j- but it's not just longevity. That's the f- interesting thing about this, right? It's not merely really long lifespan versus short lifespan. That's one major dynamic between the two of them, but it's also their, the, 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 the quality, not merely the quantity, but the quality of their uh, relationship with Arda, right? Um, 
um, and many of the, 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 the other sort of elements, like the, um, the way in which the elves are so much more likely to um, enjoy labor for the sake of enjoying labor, like rolling barrels down a hole into the water, for instance, right? A one obvious example that we get of that uh, in Tolkien's texts. Um, work, in other words, work which would be mere drudgery for many humans seems to be work that they delight in. And in the context of elvish lives, that really seems to me to make sense. Um, especially thinking, this came up... Uh, was it here that this came up? I think it was here that this came up. In, in some film, I mean. Uh, but I think it was a while back. When we were talking about elves, like, who sweeps the floors in Menegroth? And that kind of thing, mm-hmm. like that, you know, yeah. somebody has to do the menial work, right? And if somebody is a menial worker <clears throat> for a hundred thousand years, right? I mean, like, if the, like, how, how does that work? Like, do we have, you know, it would seem to, it would potentially seem to suggest a very striated society, at least over time, right? Um, but I think our response to that was n- no, their attitude t- towards it would be very different. Right, that the elvish attitude towards sweeping the floors of Menegroth would be very different from the human attitudes towards sweeping the floor in Menegroth. Um, um, it would not be mere drudgery. Um, but yeah, I mean, Nick is pointing out so many of the other things that influence the elvish point of view that are going to have impact, if we think it through, are going to have necessary and some profound impacts, but which are easy for us to forget about, especially if we only focus on the question of longevity. As he points out, they don't get cold as easily as we. Um, they aren't prone to infection. They don't need as many calories. They, 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 they aren't prone to being uh, poisoned. They don't get disease. So that those things i agree with nick that those things have a will have a very profound impact on many things just in the structure of their culture i mean think about the number of things in human culture that stem from the need to get sufficient food and to maintain sufficient warmth i mean those are two dominating uh needs um of all human cultures and the elves simply just don't have those same kinds of pressures and that's going to um that's going to create um, some necessary differences. So trying to think that through. And then as we are thinking that through, I, I agree that it's really important to try to sort of touch base with the text to make sure that some of these conclusions that we're coming to make sense in the context of some of the examples that we have. And we can't assume, Sharon, as you point out, we can't assume that like all humans are alike and all elves are alike. So like particular examples that we can pull from Lothlorien or Lake Town or Hobbiton or whatever are not necessarily going to be rules for all, you know, mortal society or all elvish society. Um, but uh, having some kind of um, touchstones there. Um, and I agree we do need to resist um, broad generalizations. Um there are going to be differences and distinctions and it's important for us to like the difference between, you know, Noldor, Sindar and Green Elf, for instance, and even within those groups, even individuals are going to have different relationships. Um, I doubt that Karinthir's relationship to the animals that he hunts 
is exactly the same as Beleg's relationship to the animals that he hunts. Just because Karanthir is a jerk and Beleg is not. <laughs> and I bet you that their more benevolent attitude towards the mortals they meet uh, has its corollary in uh, the difference in their attitudes to the animals that they kill, I bet you. Um, but but anyway, yeah, there's... Um, um, but still, I think it's interesting to begin with some kind of, um, uh, you know, broader thinking through the general tendencies that are likely to happen and then think about how that might be manifested, um, you know, to different degrees in different, uh, in different circumstances. Okay. Well, that was good. We did a bullet point, even a cluster of bullet points. So that was something. Um, but I should let folks go now because it's getting, it's now starting to get legitimately late. Um, so, um, awesome. So thanks. We'll, we'll, we'll keep thinking about these things. These are the things that are also going to be coming up at various points during some of the episodes. I think, uh, Marie or Nick, you were talking about some, some of these things are going to be very relevant, you know, in the very next episode that we're going to be doing, right? Which leads me to remember that we have next time we're going to be talking about episode six, right? Um, where we're going to be, it's time to meet Hador, who is one of the major characters of, uh, of uh, the humans here in season five. He's one of the younger generation. Uh, so, um, well, he's kind of a, like the bridge generation, really. He's young with the first generation and then uh, bridging to the later ones. But anyway, um, still. Hador is awesome, and I'm looking forward to Hador. And we're going to get the prison break, and uh, so we're going to get some dramatic action um, uh, in the next episode. It's going to be a lot of fun. So our next episode will be Thursday, April 8th um, uh, at, ten, at normal time, 10 p.m. Eastern time, uh, to talk about episode six. Um, so uh, awesome. Um, Nick says we're going to have to talk about this uh, in the next episode, specifically hunting practices. So see, there you go. Well, we'll get some direct application of hunting practices in the next episode. So I'm glad we did that cluster of bullet points because it's going to, that's totally, that was strategic. So that was excellent. Um, Awesome. (laughs) Thank you guys, Dave and Marie, for uh, uh, joining us this evening. That was a lot of fun. Thank you for. Thank you very much for having me on your thoughts there. Absolutely. Um, and, uh, we will, uh, we will be back. We'll be moving on to episode six and we'll be coming back and we'll be coming back to some of those other topics of discussion, uh, in between, uh, as we go through. Um, but, um, uh, but we'll definitely be jumping into episode six next time. Awesome. So I will say as always, thanks for listening and Godspeed.